Sessions, brought to you by a team from Mikado.com.au. Today we, we're doing our weekly commodity update, but we thought we'd do it a day early and we thought we'd do it a bit differently. Rather than us just talking about the markets, we thought we'd do a bit of a, a Q&A session with Robert Herman, our uh, wool analyst, and uh, Matt Dalglish, our livestock analyst, and myself, Andrew Whitelaw, on grains. So we're in self-isolation, sitting uh, in each other's living rooms, um, discussing the marketplace. So before we just start off with a bit of a, a summary of what is happening in, in our respective commodities, and then go on to a couple of a couple of questions that we've been receiving over the past couple of days, and just a bit of a chinwag about the market in general. So Robert and Matt, how's it going? Good. Can, can I just clarify something there, Andrew? You said we're in each other's living rooms. I just want everyone to be sure that we're in our own living rooms. We're, we're virtually in everyone's living rooms. Virtually, exactly. So, Robert, what's happening in the wool market? Well, um, I was watching the Queen's address the other night and I thought back to one of her other years where she said her year was, uh, I think it was Annus Herubilis. Is that right, Andrew? Lost me. Yeah, no, that was a few years back, <laughs> that, that particular one. That was at the end of the year address, Rob. Yeah, well, wool in 2020 has had one of those, however you pronounce it. But Anus horribilis is the yeah. Latin term, I think. It's a, okay. a bummer of a year, I think it translates to. That, 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 <laughs> that's why I didn't catch you, the, the mispronunciation of Latin. Uh, it was my, it was my uh, accent, Andrew, that uh, threw you. But, um, or my lack of, uh, what did you say it was? Not Greek? Latin. Latin, okay. It's all Greek to me. Yeah. So just getting back to your question, Andrew, um, Wool's had one of those years, and we're only. But can you can you put, do a wool market update without swearing, though? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, wool is the uh, preeminent commodity out of, in Australia, so we're we're full of uh, people with well-bred <laughs> credentials. But um, it's had a shocker, and we're only a quarter of the way into the year, and this comes on the back of what was already a steady decline that started in about, the peak was about September of 2018, and then it started declining. We had a little bit of a rally early 2019, but we've been in a decline. But what happened this year was um, that we, first of all, it had a, it lost a sale when, when it got attacked, a malware attack on its computer systems. Uh, and that threw things into a bit of chaos because the wool just keeps coming. It doesn't stop. You know, people keep shearing and so they want to sell. And so as a result of that, there was an extra sale rostered, which is next week's sale. That uh, was normally the Easter recess. And then the COVID-19 hit. And we'll talk a bit more about that later, I think, Andrew. But it really hit hard. Uh, firstly, with Chinese mills being, you know, virtually shut down, uh, they came back online, but the orders had dried up. And, for, for, and we also had our two second biggest customers in Italy and India really impacted in terms of their industrial capacity. So not good. Nothing good to say about the wool market in the last um, three months, Andrew. So where, where are we compared to this time last year, roughly? It's ah, a good question. We're a long way down. Um, I'll come back to that if you like. Can I take that as a question without notice? That's like a set of estimates. Um, but but the decline, we're probably getting towards you know thirty or forty percent off where we were this time last year. Yeah, so terrible, effectively. So Matt, what's happening in livestock? <laughs> 
Uh, on a domestic uh, front, if you look at beef and lamb, the notable thing in the last week or so is that um, supply metrics have kind of normalised somewhat. And by that, I mean the yardings, at least. We, we saw a rush of yardings, uh, both for sheep and for cattle, into the sale yard through the middle of March when um, a few producers looked like they were um, a bit nervous about what was going on overseas and just had stock on the ground there and wanted to lighten up a bit. So we did see a couple of peaks in yarding, but that seems to have normalised both for cattle and sheep markets. Um, and we're seeing uh, processing like slaughter levels also kind of pick up a bit. They were quite low for a while when uh, processors were also watching anxiously overseas as to what was happening with regards to export markets. Uh, so processes and slaughter levels also look to be um, heading back to, towards more normal levels, um, which has meant for prices most recently for, for both cattle and sheep at the sale yards, they, they were in decline a little bit with all the uncertainty. And when I say by decline, it wasn't a big, wouldn't call it a crash, but it was certainly a, a steady move down week on week. And um, this week we've, we've stabilised. So um, only some only slightly softer, but um, some for some categories of cattle and and sheep uh, or lamb, I should say, have uh, increased slightly. So that's a positive sign from a domestic perspective. Um, offshore markets, the March figures uh, for red meat exports are out and they weren't too bad either, to be honest. Uh, uh, a couple of little points where there was um, a decline, but there were also markets that were surprising that actually saw increases in volumes. Namely, one of those was China for both lamb and for beef which was good to see. Um, the other concern I'd just bring up, um, which we can probably go into a bit more depth later, is um, just the volatility we're seeing in beef markets and particularly in the US. Uh, so we've been watching live cattle futures quite closely and that's had a very tumultuous uh, month and a half, two months, um, and, and again, starting to hit the skids uh, at the moment. So that's something to keep an eye on uh, for future. Right, so on greens, it's been, uh, been pretty volatile the last couple of weeks. Uh, we saw the market rise up largely off the back of that Australian dollar dropping to 55 cents. Uh, and that was a, a precursor to any moves in actual, in actual offshore futures. Uh, after that rise in, uh, or fall in, in the Aussie dollar, uh, we actually started to see overseas futures rallying as well. And uh, at the same time, our Aussie dollar's risen back up to 62. So a lot of the potential gains have been gone, but still sitting there at extremely good prices for for next harvest, around about 330 Aussie dollars per tonne, uh, but it was as high as 355 at one point about two or three weeks ago. Uh, largely, there's been a lot of concern around the world that there will be some form of uh, logistical log jams in terms of trade flows. So the likes of you know, Russia or Ukraine, they put out some quotas in place, but the reality is those quotas were quotas that would be what they would normally export, so not a huge issue. Uh, there was a bit of a, a concern when Ukraine banned wheat exports this week, or at least uh, some of the newspapers put out they banned wheat exports, but it was actually buckwheat, so it wasn't a big driver of international markets. And then in the US, there's been a lot of panic buying of pasta, same as we had over here, uh, which has meant there's been quite a lot of short-term uh, demand spikes, which has pushed up pricing. But in, in reality, it's, it really is a case of, well, how long will that sort of panic buying last? And that's why we're starting to see, I guess, the market flatline in terms of uh, 
prices down the line are actually at the same level as prices at present, whereas normally the market is uh, paying a premium or, or a carry for the forward months. So I think the bigger picture to me is that eventually the markets tend to return to those fundamentals, and fundamentally we do have a big crop this year globally, but also in all likelihood in, in Australia we're going to see a pretty big crop. So I think it's positive for farmers because we've got an opportunity to lock in a price just now for, for harvesting, which will be you know, drought-type prices without the drought, uh, touch wood. And uh, we're sure to have the yield if we get average rains continuing, at least on the East Coast. So it's going to be an interesting couple of months whether, whether we can maintain these sort of levels, uh, especially on the, on the back of having a big crop. So that's really a bit of a really... Uh, short summary of what's been happening uh, on across those sort of four markets. Uh, so we've got a couple of questions and I thought we could maybe just run through some of those ones and just have a bit of a, a chinwag about the market. Uh, Robert, one of those questions was that if the uh, if there's a bit of a, a lack of demand for fibres, cotton and, uh, and wool, you know, High street stores are, are all closed down across most of the developed world, if not all of the developed world. You know the uh, the winter fashion is going to be sitting in a in a cupboard now for for the next year. So what is this going to have in terms of future demand for 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 wool, cotton? I suppose they're both really the same at the end of the day. Uh, are, are we going to see a stockpile, and is that going to have ramifications down the line? Yes, it's. Um it's certainly a factor, Andrew. The, um, the the stockpile of wool is growing in Australia, although remembering we're coming from a very low base of stocks and also low production historically. But uh, cotton stocks have really ramped up in recent times. And um, I noticed that Andrew Woods in on um, his Mercado article of this week um, has, has, uh, has talked about that. And it, it's also identified, he's also identified that the price decline in wool is almost exactly the same as um, as in other fibres. So whether it's cotton or polyester, um, it's it's the same. And, so so, and that's, so that Robert, sorry for interrupt, but that's kind of a guess what we see with other commodities as well. You know, corn and wheat, tallow and palm, they're all at the end of the day quite replaceable with one another. Yeah, that's right. And we for you know, I wrote the other day that um, wool. At times of when things are going well, wool seems to try and convince itself that it's divorced from the other fibres. Um, the reality is that it, it does occasionally disengage, but not for long. And so when, when the other fibres start to catch cold and come backwards, so does wool. And when the rallies are on, whether it's you know, driven for whatever reason, uh, everything benefits from it. But in order to go back to your point about um, future demand, it's, it's really... We were pretty confident that um, if China got back in, their processing capacity would ramp up quickly. And, uh, you know, wool's not a big employer, but you can get factories going again. And, you know, a bit like in the global financial crisis, Australia sailed through to some degree because China was was full bore. Um, but what's become obvious in recent days, and I think Chris Wilcox was the first one to really articulate this, was that, and it makes a lot of sense, you've got the big retail customers uh, in the US and Europe uh, all virtually shut down. So it's, you're sitting there waiting for your winter orders for next winter for the, for the Northern Hemisphere 
and they're not coming, but there's no one there to send them. So that's putting a, a real shudder through Chinese processing. The, the, there's, there's a yin and yang to that though, Andrew, and that is that um, China, while China, 80% uh, of our wool gets exported to China, of that 80%, 50 to 60% of it is now being consumed in China. So it's a little bit hard to put your finger on it, but certainly right now, there's no doubt that COVID-19 is, is a real problem. And you've also got the issue of um, pro, uh, exporters trying to get financing. See, wool is different to, to meat and grains to some degree because it has such a long pipeline. So therefore it's got to be financed by somebody for such a long time until the retailer actually sells it to a customer. And uh, it's always been a problem for wool, but in these times of uncertainty, it's, it's a bigger problem, I think. So Robert, there's, uh, I guess there's a lot of talk around about, you know, closing down the sales auctions, you know, whether we should uh, stop physical auctions because of, I think partly because of the health, but also due to the fact that the market has been so volatile and it's crashed so so quickly. There was discussions about this probably July last year when the market had, had collapsed. Uh, I'm of the view that we, you should probably just let markets do their own thing. But I guess the question is, like, the, with, with a lot of those uh, wool producers, they don't have to sell the wool. You know, they, it's, it's not a perishable product. They can store it for, what, 20 years without any issue. Are we seeing any more of, of people passing in at auction? Yeah, we certainly are. And right to say we can store it for a long time, but, of course, that does have some sort of cost to it at some point. But uh, what we saw in uh, the last couple of weeks was real concern from the trade that there was a lot of wool coming to the market and it just was just swamping the exporters. They had weak uh, order books and at the same time, the growers were saying, let's cash in this wool. Now, this week, there was a, um, a real concerned effort by the brokers to go back to their growers and say, look, if you're not a genuine seller and you don't really have to sell, uh, pull back. And that made a difference to the market. I think there's no doubt about that. The other factor that, that the market is concerned about, which you touched on, is whether the auction sales can continue. And so this week they tried online auction selling. Uh, apparently it went brilliantly and uh, well supported by the exporters, which is interesting because in the past that uh, online selling and sale by description without the samples was... Um, you know, was always resisted. So in times of adversity, people perhaps uh, become more uh, open to new ideas and we're seeing that in the wool market. So once it's over, in a year's time from now, it could be all online. Well, it's a, it's a good question and it's probably one for you, Matt, as well. I mean, we're, we're seeing um, a big swing in, or an upswing in auctions plus sales too for livestock. Um, is that, is it... Um, what do you think? Do you think it's going to last forever or is it just going to be in place now and we revert back to the traditional auctions? Because I think with wool, there are th it's a funny thing about the wool market, you've now got three different online platforms trialling, you know, which just seems crazy. You're not going to have three, clearly. It'd be nice if you had one focused and, and developed, but we've got three. But what about on the livestock? I mean, Auctions Plus couldn't be in a better position, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, they've had a, and it was significantly um, increased was starting, but then with the announcement for some of those store sales in Victoria that got postponed, I think that pushed a lot across to the uh, 
Auctions Plus platform as well. Um, I'm of the opinion, though, I mean, it's one of those things, Rob, how long is a piece of string? I think if um, this ongoing kind of disruption around COVID-19 extends, um, people might become over time more and more familiar, more comfortable with that online platform. Um, maybe it will hasten uh, the move towards that if they, you know, as they get as some of those traditional types get much more comfortable with it. Um, you know, and and I guess also uh, you know the ability to get to go direct as well. Um, you know, the, the the sale yards over time have been kind of slowly um, getting eroded from those two channels. Um, this this if people start to become much more familiar with it, if it's extended, then yeah, I think um, it could further erode uh, the relevance of the sale yards to a degree. Just talking about um, changes, Andrew. I've got I've got one for you at the grain desk, and it, look, it always always amazes me. But whenever there's a sort of a a quiet day, I guess someone throws up the Russia might export grain, and that came up again. What what's your take on all of that? Uh, I think it's a bit like uh, Russia's got to be seen to doing something, and Russia every now and then will uh, will throw out. You know we're gonna we're gonna ban exports, and it it always uh, results in a bit of an uptick in prices. So I'm not I'm not I'm not uh, saying that they may be doing that in order to ensure that they get more more tax receipts into the country, but they do it. That rumor comes up once every six, seven, eight months, regardless of the conditions. There's always some reason why they're going to ban exports, whether it's the annexation of the Crimea or whether it's uh, disease or fire or, uh, or in this case, uh, protecting uh, local supplies. So they, they announced the quota for 7 million tonnes maximum exports between April and June, which is around about what they normally export. So it's a bit like them saying we're doing something without actually doing something, a bit like a Clayton's offer. So I think it's... Uh, it's largely a bit of a, a symbol more than anything. And I think what we're sort of probably going to see is uh, that's an April to June quarter. In June, they'll have the new crop coming off. And it's looking a little bit drier just now, but it's still looking like a decent crop. So they'll still have plenty of explorable surplus. And with there being oil prices in the, in the sub-$30 region, uh, Russia is going to want to encourage as much exports of wheat as possible. Because uh, you've got to remember, they're a bit like Australia. They don't need a huge amount of wheat because the population is still relatively small compared to what they produce. So unless something major happens and the production drops to that sort of sub-60 million tonnes, then I don't really see them actually putting in a drastic quarter for, for, for next year because they need that money to come in because their income from uh, from oil will be drastically down. But I'm sure I noticed, but, Andrew. I noticed, Andrew. You were writing also about the plantings and the projections for the crop here in Australia. I mean, we're seeing a completely different scenario now to what we've seen leading up to the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, when you when you look at it, I've been saying it since sort of probably last probably last season really was that it's going to cost too much to restock. You know, as Matt was saying before, there's all those. In, in previous reports, farmers start to get grass fever and they start to buy buy sheep and cattle. And I've, I've got a friend in, in WA and he's sold, I think, six truckloads of sheep and every single one of them, bar one, has gone to northern New South Wales. And so it's expensive to restock. 
and a lot of people will, will balk at paying these type of prices for, for sheep and cattle. So I think they will, will switch to grains and there'll be higher hectares planted. Uh, and then you look at the just the rainfall. There's always going to be people missing out, so we've always got to be careful that we say that everyone's getting good rain. Not everyone does, but that's, we're a continent, not a country. But for the most part, New South Wales, Vic, large parts of SA, some parts of WA are all looking well above average. And so that sets it up pretty nicely for the coming season. And we've not really had a good start to the season probably since, you know, 2016 probably. And uh, and the Bureau's uh, outlook is, is pretty uh, attractive for the next three months, whereas normally this time of year, they sort of tend to sit on the fence with a 50-50 chance, but now they're saying uh, in all likelihood uh, uh, above average rainfall for most areas. So, Especially Western, Western Australia looks like it's uh, shaping up for a really good three months, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think it's it's just it's just a good signs. And uh, after having sort of two years, especially on the east coast of, of poor production with the exception of Western Victoria, we're, um, we're looking like we're going to produce a decent crop. And that's why it's probably more important for farmers to start thinking about their marketing because, you know, yield's great, but you might as well try and get good yields and uh, good prices as well. And there are some opportunities out there, which in, in reality haven't been there in, in recent years this early on. So we're spot level and see what wheat is at the highest level, I think, in this decade. There's a couple of old um, the, uh, points that relate to all that, Matt, with the cattle too. And that's, um, and you've been, you've been banging on about these for a while. One is the female slaughter ratio and one is the process of profitability. I mean, they're, they're, a bit, they're, they're linked, but what's, what's your take on how this is all going to play out here? Because the, the meat market really, you know, lower dollar, um, high restock of demand. It's sort of it, it's been impacted a little bit in the last month or two, but not much not much to speak of really. And coming off really high prices too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when it was all breaking this Corona episode in the early stages, um, Andrew and I gave a couple of presentations around it, and Corona wasn't as heavily featured, but we did mention it in saying that the big risk was if it became a pandemic. Obviously, we've seen now it's become a pandemic, but even through that whole process, we were saying with regards to the red meat space that, you know, there was a lot of Australian agricultural commodities that would be, you know, quite at risk and wool was one of those. We said we're very much at risk given its exposure to China particularly. Um, but, you know, we were looking at the red meat space and saying, look, there's one of the or two commodities there in sheep and beef that were... You know, obviously they're not without risk, but they're certainly in very good shape. And, and as you said, Rob, the, the Aussie dollar coming off certainly helped a lot to insulate, um, particularly for beef prices, when um, we saw global beef prices coming off aggressively. Um, the Aussie dollar came went off the same fashion, and that, that tends to give us a bit of an insulating effect. And then if you combine that very low supply we're seeing for the you know, cattle herd and also the low supply equally in the sheep flock, um, it meant that um, that was another thing in favour of producers given you know, where we were sitting supply-wise. And once you add the rain on top of that um, and that restocker activity in both of those markets, um, you could, you know, we, we obviously we saw those prices that were, were rallying strongly in the start of the year. We've had a bit of steam or a bit of momentum taken out of those prices, but when you look back historically, they're still pretty good, uh, re really. Um, the concern around um, both of those red meat markets were what was going to happen with exports, but... Um, 
the February figures were a bit lower, and that's probably to be uh, account. And you can understand why they're lower given all the turmoil at that time. But the March ones were the ones I was really looking closely for, and they've come out um, pretty good. Um, if you look at beef uh, for um, for the March figures, we had China and Japan both uh, recording increases on the month, uh, and both of them above the five-year trend for March. Uh, so. A good signal. That's that's our top. Uh, Japan's got back to being our top beef uh, export destination this year, uh, and China were at the top's place when we had the African swine fever playing out last year. But they've slipped back now to second spot. But it's still a respectable uh, increase for China, and like I said, they're above average. Um, and it was really the, the third and fourth spot. So USA and South Korea are the two that um, didn't perform as well for March. So they were below average, and that that meant total exports were slightly below average. But you know, I think I referred to, I think we put out a piece this week on Mercado and I, I borrowed a little bit from the meatloaf song. I was, I was talking about beef and I was thinking of meatloaf anyway and I kind of said that uh, two out of four of our top spots, that's not bad. Um, and when you look across the lamb, particularly uh, a very strong surge back in lamb exports um, out of Australia for March into China. Uh, what, the two, the two out of four isn't bad? It ain't bad. You missed that. Just talking about meatloaf, Matt. Yep. Um, th there's a bit of concern that the um, the, the with the, all the food service industry closed down, you know, the restaurants closed down. Yep. Uh, the meatloaf might be in demand, but the, <laughs> the top of the range uh, steaks might be more difficult to clear. What's your understanding on that? And what what do you think? Yeah. That's going to play out. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That was a nice segue, Rob, when you said and, and meatloaf being in demand. I, I presume then straight away you weren't talking about the singer meatloaf after his performance at the grand final a few years back. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, and we've seen that domestically. We've also seen it overseas where there's been a, a rush to those cheaper cuts, um, certainly to the to grinding and, and, and mince type um, product. Um, you know, obviously with people wanting to stock up, it's a cheaper thing and you can, you can load your freezer up with it far cheaper than, you know, loading up with a whole lot of prime steaks. And then you, when you overlay less people going out uh, or, no, or no people going out in some instances or, or only relying on takeaway, um, some of those uh, uh, high-end cuts are, are coming under pressure. Um, I think I think that's um, you know we, we're seeing those kind of premiums for those high-end cuts and uh, reducing it certainly. Um, when you look at the, um, the what would be the traditional kind of expectation at the processing end of what they could expect to get when they're when they're um, you know processing an animal, um, I think they've had to turn their ideas on their head a little bit in terms of um, you know what, what's for the next at least short term and into the longer term we start to see um, this play out into a much bigger uh, global recession or, or depression. So, um, so are we going to see things like Wagyu, the premium from, let's say, Angus to Wagyu coming down yeah. to, to not? Yeah, or well, not, you know, I think it's, it's certainly going to be under pressure, that, that kind of premium, those premium products. Um, I'd be surprised if, if you get to the stage where they're not, you know, they're going to be um, virtually nothing. But certainly the historic kind of premiums that those types of cuts would get, I think, are going to come under pressure and are going to remain under pressure while while um, many countries are in lockdown and, and, um, and there's inability to go and enjoy a nice um, sirloin at your favourite restaurant with a bottle of um, Chateau Neuf de Pape or something. You can still have a bottle of wine at home though. So I guess one of the common uh, denominators in all the commodities at the moment with us being export denominated for the most part is the Aussie dollar. 
Uh, I sort of briefly alluded that it would gone from uh, 55 back up to 62 after starting a year at 70. So a pretty pretty big ranges in, in a relatively you know short period of time, three months. Uh, Matt, I've heard that you know a little bit about FX. Um, so what happened in the GFC, we had a similar sort of pattern, but probably over a longer period of time when it fell from close to parity to 60, then back up again within about three or four months. Uh, what was the background to that? And, and could we see that again here in this situation? Yeah, it's been, it's been, it has been some time uh, since I was um, slapping around the Aussie dollar, as we used to say, but... Um, I guess once a currency trader, always a currency trader for that perspective. Um, so yeah, GFC was an interesting one. So like what we saw this period with um, with the Aussie, Aussie, Aussie dollars are very much um, a currency that uh, trades against the risk sentiment. So if there's a higher risk, often the first in, in inclination of global markets and financial markets to sell the Aussie dollar. And that was what we saw this time around. The Aussie got sold off with all that uncertainty around COVID. And it was the same scenario with GFC. We saw... The Aussie gets sold off as the initial move. Um, however, with the GFC, that was something that was it obviously heavily impacted the US uh, for a number of years, and it and it definitely impacted parts of Europe, um, significant parts of Europe too. Um, whereas with China, they did get a reduction in their growth uh, through that time, but they were still putting out you know five percent, six percent growth through the GFC, um, and that was one of the reasons why. Australia was able to kind of go through the GFC reasonably unscathed. Uh, one, because the, that initial move, the Aussie dollar took a bit of the heat off, you know, like it does um, for those export commodities. When it, when you get the risk factors, the Aussie comes off, it go, you know, makes everything in Australia cheaper relatively overseas. Um, but then once the financial community started to realise that China was kind of wading their way through it reasonably well, and, and with Australia's exposure to China in a range of commodities, not just agricultural they could see that the Australian situation were actually doing quite well. Our GDP was holding up um, for that period of time too. We were um, having the highest interest rates across the majority of the world, in fact. Um, so that started to feed back into a bit more positive sentiment as you went out to the medium to longer term. And then uh, with the GFC period, the Aussie actually started to increase. And when we got through to you know, through the GFC and then as... Um, you know, like the US started to, um, although they took a lot longer to improve out of it, um, the Australian dollar was able to benefit from a very much weaker US dollar. And that was what we saw through 2011, where the Aussie went above parity, as you said, got to around 110, nearly just a bit over 110 at one stage there in 2011. So, so here's one for you, Andrew. You're a, you're a, a commodity watcher. Um, over the years, people have... Um, bemoaned the fact that we're so reliant on China and we, we were pretty happy to be reliant on the GFC. Is that going to be the case again? Are we going to, um, are we going to sneak through? I guess when it comes down to, have we, is China going to recover? You'd have to think. That's why I asked, that's why I asked you the question, Andrew. But you'd have to think, it's, it's, is it easier for them to recover because they are a form of, you know, very one-party state that can mandate for things to happen. If they want a hospital built in five days, it's built. People will volunteer their time to do it. Will their economy improve? They're, they really are uh, 
the sort of the linchpin of the, the global economy nowadays. So I guess they also copped, they also copped CV earlier, so they started to deal with it earlier as well, for, for better or for worse, but they were ahead of us. Yeah, but then I guess it comes down to there's so many variables as well, because the yeah. US, if the US is uh, up a certain creek, then uh, <clears throat> that may have an impact upon China's ability to recover, because if if US is no longer a strong enough economy and a big chunk of their uh, Chinese exports go into into the US and, and likewise into Europe, you know, as much as we've we've done well from China, I guess the whole world is is reliant on on a global supply chain and that impacts uh, China as much as it impacts the US, EU and and I guess us. So you think that China US deal is still gonna be relevant now or has it just got swept under the table? I think and this is just my uh, political watcher's hat on, is I think this uh, this next US election will very much be an anti-Chinese election because we will see, um, you know, you can already see it with Trump's sort of rhetoric. It's uh, the Chinese flu, the Wuhan flu. And, uh, yeah, if I was in his boots and I was looking to get win votes, that's exactly the tactic I'd be using, is, is using nationalism. And all national re- nationalism requires another. You know, Scottish nationalism is about the uh, the English down south, and uh, US nationalism is uh, probably went from anti-Russian to probably anti-Chinese now. <coughs> so, and, and I think we will probably see a rise in nationalism around the world as, uh, you know, as we see unemployment rise as a result, direct result of this virus. So we might see more Hadrian's walls and Mexican walls built in the future, yeah. metaphorically speaking, of course. Yeah, possibly, yeah. At one, least... Th- one, sorry, mate, one of the um, aspects just there, just on that US-China scenario, you're right, Rob, too, or with Andrew, that made you said this, that, um, you know, during the whole trade tren- tension scenario with US and China and the US pulled back from a lot of Chinese imports into the US, that, that was having a definite... Um, impact on Chinese growth and there was a lot of concerns there so um, they do actually for, for, even though they have those um, political difficulties sometimes they do need each other to be both working well um, given how big they both are in terms of global trade um, around the world and with each other so I think China will be limited in terms of coming out of their own uh, economic problems if, if the US drag on and have real significant issues over there um, one interesting thing, though, my um, my wife here's uh, got family over in Europe, and and um, her, her mum was talking to people. Oh, they just see how they're faring um, at the moment now with all this with all this uncertainty, and they said one thing they noted, which was which was quite curious, was in the past, and they're, they're from an Eastern Europe area. They said in the past um, when there was issues around um, foreign aid and, and stuff, it was always when there was problems, it was always the US that would come to the support of parts of Eastern Europe in terms of whether it's money or just sending across, you know, clothes or goods or whatever to assist in, in these kind of um, recovery type um, assistance packages. And they said this time around, um, it's been notable that uh, the only assistance coming across at the moment uh, in terms of foreign aid is coming from China. Uh, and, and I wonder if, um, you know, we, we will start to see a, a changing dynamic of, um, you know, in, around parts of the world, like in Africa and parts of Eastern Europe and, you know, Southeast Asia and other areas where, um, you know, we were starting to see the pendulum shift a little bit with the Chinese, that one belt, one road initiative they were putting through, the infrastructure 
and lending they were doing in lots of these countries. And I'm just thinking that this is the perfect time too, that if China can get through this quicker and, and, um, and then refocus their attention back to parts of the world where they want to have influence and, and potentially create connections so they can get a good supply chain into China for goods from everywhere, um, we, could, we could see a further change of um, dynamic of power play and China just becomes that much more important again to parts of the world that used to have, used to look towards the US. Um, That's a really good observation, Matt, because as you know, we've got, um, we've got connections in Uganda and I was speaking to them the other night and because Uganda doesn't have the, the, the resources as a country to, to do what it needs to do, the government asked if companies that were working in Uganda, you know, mining companies and all those companies that go in there and, and in the past have taken the product out, would they support? And, and apparently it's been quite dramatic, the amount of support that's come. And, and uh, Wilson, our man over there, was noting that uh, even the Chinese companies who everybody hated are now contributing significantly to the community effort. And, um, and while that's good, I think the point you're making, Matt, while that's good in the short term, there may be a bigger picture uh, in all of this. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that all develops, particularly when you've got a leader in the US that is looking like he's going to get in again and he's been very uh, pro-US, um, very nationalist in his approach, um, you know, across a whole range of different areas and, and hasn't made himself any friends really through Europe, for the traditional powerful Europe, but then probably also hasn't made himself any friends in, in you know, kind of parts of Western Europe, Eastern Europe and into Russia and, you know, elsewhere around the, around the world, I guess. It's, um, his, his level of diplomacy is, um, is certainly unique in the way he approaches that whole aspect of foreign relations. Of uh, that sort of movement away from that uh, soft power moving to China. I think we've also, also a change in the business environment as well and a move away from relying on those uh, just-in-time uh, manufacturing and logistics chains. Uh, like Even talking to a couple of our customers, they, they're a bit concerned that uh, they've been reliant on this just-in-time for, for a long time. And uh, the reality is that they are concerned that what happens if something like this happens again five years down the line? You know, you you, you save uh, save a little chunk of money every year, uh, but you blow five years worth of revenue in in, in one year. Is it, is it really worth it? And is it better to be sourcing from a couple of different uh, nations? Um, and that's something I think we will start to see is is people looking more at. Uh, Homegrown products, where possible, at least at least in the short term, it'll probably switch back to being cheapest available supplier. But I think there will be a move towards uh, two source or three source uh, supply chains, which will be. Of course, we've always been self sufficient in toilet paper, Andrew, but it didn't help us. <laughs> true, true, but there's a lot of products that we have no supply chain for. Yeah, and that's that's where the issue comes from. And, and we've got products which we are self-sufficient in, but we still import from overseas. Probably a topic for another time in the podcast about uh, what are the other potential implications of this whole COVID episode once it all plays out. There's, there's areas around what we consider to be essential services now. People are well aware of the types of jobs that are important and ones that aren't. Uh, some people have found out um, you know, in very um, uncomfortable circumstances that they weren't that important. 
Um, but um, you know whether that plays out to long-term uh, shift in, in political view or, or more social view of, of how um, jobs are perceived of you know things like having a, a good strong manufacturing industry locally um, obviously support for the agricultural sector being such an essential service um, you know transport and logistics and you know all those people along that the healthcare sector the education sector I think it's going to make people really reassess um, you know where government money should be should be um, directed towards um, where things should be encouraged to, uh, you know, to kind of um, grow and, and make sure that we've got some level of um, uh, self-sufficiency, whether you want to call it that or whatever. It's going to be interesting to see how that whole dynamic plays out as well. But like I said, it's probably a topic for another whole, whole episode. So I think we probably wrapped it up. I guess the general summary on ag markets just now is that it's all looking reasonably rosy, unless you're in wool. I think if you're in wool, you're hoping that this is as bad as it gets. What's the uh, what's that uh, saying? It's never as as bad or as good as you think it is. It's somewhere in between. So, yeah, worry. Uh, but at the end of the day, things turn around. You know, wool was pretty bad for a while, and it recovered after twenty years. Yeah, it's just a bad time for it though, Andrew, because what we were hoping for was um, that with the drought breaking on the East Coast, there would be a significant rebuilding of the flock and, and, and towards wool. And now that's under jeopardy. And that's, we've talked about that a lot in our articles. Um, it's, a, it's an issue. And even, even the other thing we talked about the other day was funding for AWI. You know, it's, it's the uh, reduction in the AWI wool tax couldn't have come at a worse time. But don't get me started on wool, Andrew. We could be here for the rest of the weekend talking yeah but i think it's it will it will be interesting because that's exactly what we were talking about for years was rebuilding that flock and rebuilding the amount of wool and what is it anthony close has done his nuffield scholarship on encouraging merino mm. and i wonder if he's going to have to refresh a couple of chapters of that based on the, the current situation but people will still grow wool because it will either be profitable or, or it won't be and they'll yeah but in the moment it's not looking rosy but you know, the meat, the meat part of it's looking good. So, so I think we'll probably wrap it up there. And uh, thanks for listening. If you're, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family. We'll probably try and do this. You know, it's quite easy nowadays with Zoom to do this with our our group. So we'll probably try and do this every every maybe even every week or every second week as a, as a way of uh, updating the market. Uh, so if you've got any questions, then uh, shoot them through and we will uh, try to answer them. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Cheers.